I know what you're thinking. I'm not Michelle. Uh, but I am going to read the teaching text for us, and then Michelle's going to take over. I'm going to read from Ephesians chapter 2, the first 10 verses, 1 to 10. Paul writes this, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you've been saved. And God raised, raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace that you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is the word of the Lord. That's the hype I needed. <laughs> Take it up here. Good afternoon, church family. Good afternoon. I hope everyone is doing well today. Um, we're starting a new chapter of Ephesians. If you're new today and are coming in, um, what is Ephesians? It's a letter in the book of the Bible, uh, specifically written by Paul to a church in Ephesus. And last week, Brad closed off the first chapter of Ephesians, and today I get to start us in chapter 2. And what's beautiful about last week is we heard the sermon preached I was so encouraged and challenged, and in the same week, uh, I got to wrestle deeper with the text through small group. It was beautiful. Let me tell you, we had pasta, we sat down together, and we learned about, I now know a good chunk of go-to karaoke songs <laughs> of a lot of people in this room. <laughs> and I now know how to pronounce, or know that I'm pronouncing karaoke wrong as per Sharon. So thank you so much, Sharon, for correct my pronunciation. I still don't remember how it's supposed to be pronounced, and I'm so sorry. <laughs> she said it's okay. And you know what? That's what small groups are about. It's about having fun, connecting deeper, growing in faith together, and serving the city. And what I love about small groups is that you get to wrestle with some of the questions and passages or phrases that we may not have time to cover in a sermon like this one. And then you get to imagine together, wrestle together in how you are to serve and apply the sermon or this text that we've just read into our daily lives and context and even for us as a church. What does that look like for us uh, practically? And so we'll never stop inviting you and just to let you know that there's always room for more. We had 14 people come to small group last Tuesday, and it's a good problem to have. Right now we have two, one at the Berneskis and one at the Ames, and I just want to say you and someone that you're praying for, a friend of yours, is always welcome. 
So today, I want to begin by asking you this very important question. This one haunts me all the time. Have you ever cleaned something, a space, your car, anything, and to you, it looked clean, spotless, but someone else comes, and then they clean it, and it was as if you never cleaned it at all. They found all this dirt and all this dust, and you're thinking, where did that come from? Then I just cleaned the space. And I've had this happen to me many times as a teenager. I had a simple task before I go out of the house, before I go to youth group, and before I go out. Clean the house, right? You vacuum, uh, mine was to vacuum and like dust surfaces. And then to me it looks clean, I finish my work, and sometimes my mom checks on this work. And I can guarantee you, a hundred times, out of a hundred, she will find more dust than ever before. She'll go, did you see this pile of dust? Like literally, there's a pile of dust right here. And then she'll look under the rug, like, did you see this dust? And I go, that must have snuck in there while you were coming, because I swear to you, mom, I've cleaned that dust. <laughs> and I know some of you here are more than just passionate about cleaning. You don't just do your chores. You do something called deep cleaning. Does anyone do a session of deep cleaning? Like take a chunk out of their day to deep clean a space or spaces in your home? And in COVID, this was very, like it really took on its peak because we had nothing else to do during lockdown, right? And there was a virus going around and there was this interesting trend in the subculture of deep cleaning called laundry stripping. Do you guys know what that is? Laundry stripping, I'm so glad to enlighten you today. Laundry stripping is this method of washing your clothes and linens in such a way that it removes any residue that invisibly attaches to your clothing. Like fabric softener, body oils that have collected on your clothes over time. And you do this by soaking your garments in an at-home borax solution, because you know borax removes everything. And then for six hours, you let it sit there. And you Google these photos, the results are shocking. It's shocking. The water is almost always murky and black or dark brown. It's a little humbling to think that we carry around invisible dirt, no matter how many times we've washed our clothes. And I want to say today that the word we have for today will feel like this session of laundry stripping. It will feel like an uncomfortable soak in some really bad news. There might be more dirt than we realize. Because sometimes, if not oftentimes, we have this default position when we read or approach the Bible that we're basically good people with some bad habits to improve. I could improve on my road rage. You know, I didn't have to yell at that person or honk my, my horn. I could tell the border guard what I actually spent when I crossed the border. I could do that. Those are bad habits. I need to get rid of them. And honestly, today will be kind of a hard word, but that's sort of the gift and challenge of a book study, where scripture sets the agenda. We don't get to skirt around uncomfortable topics, and we get to sit under scripture that we may not otherwise do on our own. 
I don't set the agenda. The teaching team doesn't set the agenda. Scripture does. The me who thinks we're basically clean people. The me who cannot see the dirt, even when it's sitting right there in front of my face. So that's where we're going today. A deep, deep soak in bad news in what I like to call the pit. And in really good news, out of the pit. So in the pit, and then out of the pit. Two movements, two sections. But there is a spoiler alert, because there is a but God in there. My two favorite two-word combinations in the Bible that will make all the bad soap worth trudging through. Mm -hmm. So in the pit, let's dive in. We are plunged right into bad news, right at the beginning of the chapter. And the bad news is that we're in a deep pit that we cannot get out of. And it sounds like, or it looks like here, that the pit comes in very three very deep parts that are for us here in the screen. One is spiritual deadness, that's one part. The second part is that we follow the ways of the world and follow an altogether different ruler. And the third part is following the desires of our flesh. Now let me dive into what Paul says when he writes, you were dead in your transgression and sins. He says this is at base what is true of everyone in the world. The people in this room, the pastoral team, nobody is exempt. And to be spiritual, spiritually dead means to be unresponsive to God and to be completely cut off from the source of life. And in this state, we naturally bent towards two things, transgression and sin. Let me define them for you here quickly. Transgression, which is the Greek word, which means to cross a boundary that should not be crossed or a false step. And sin, which means to miss the mark. And Paul is writing that transgression and sin or stepping out of boundaries and missing the target is something that flows naturally in our being or from our being. Paul writes that we willingly follow the ways of the world as a result. And the word for world here, a lot of Greek words that I'm defining for you, get ready, is the Greek word cosmos, where we get the word cosmos, which means a society's value system that is built away from God or completely against his purpose and wisdom. And really at its very heart, it's the failure to recognize God for who he is as the creator and giver of life. But again, as I've mentioned before, our default posture is to think that we're basically good people. Just some bad habits, minor tweaks, all behavioral. So I want you to consider this picture for a moment. Imagine that you were a young adult. Some of you don't need to do this. You are a young adult. And you grew up with very loving parents. They gave you everything you needed by way of love and care, and they provided for all your practical needs. They were very good parents to you. And then imagine you moved out of the house and you stopped talking to your parents altogether. But you continue to cash their checks. You continue to eat the food they drop off in front of your house, and you continue to be on their cell phone plan. And no, this is not describing a specific young adult that I have in mind. <laughs> but you never answer your parents' home. You don't just keep missing it. You see it on your screen and you consciously reject it. 
You don't answer their door when they come knocking to drop off your food. And imagine someone were to say to you, why are you treating your parents so terribly? And imagine you were to say, what? I'm not a bad person. I volunteer regularly. I give away my money to the poor all the time. I haven't so much as stolen a single thing or even murdered a person. I haven't done any of that. I'm a good person. I think we would all agree that that would be a terrible excuse to treat loving parents. And listen, this is not me saying the least you can do is pay your parents back, because I'm sure that's not their heart. And neither is God's heart like that. But when our attitude is, have I not done enough? Am I not good enough? And I'm not that bad compared to. It's indicative of the kind of heart that has not fully appreciated just how good the gospel really is. Because mm-hmm. God is not in the business of making basically good people. Paul is clear. He's here to make dead people come alive in relationship with him, the source of all life and goodness. Mm-hmm. But the bad news does get worse. Paul also writes that in our spiritually dead state, we willingly follow the world. And we also follow what he calls the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. And one must ask, as you read the Bible, like, who is this? And what is this? And let me tell you that it is a real force in our world. It's invisible, but it doesn't mean it's not real. And it animates the acts of evil that are beyond ordinary evil. Acts that horrify us and put fear in us and what human uh, what humanity is capable of. They add power to the depravity we inflict, and they have names like racism, murder, abuse, and it reminds us that not all things spiritual are good. That's what Paul writes elsewhere. We need to learn how to discern the spirits. They're not all good. And the Greek word for air here means a foggy atmosphere. And picture driving or walking through the fog. It's quite disorienting because it's difficult to know where you're going, and that's what these forces are capable of, making things hard to see. And every time we choose to do good, there's this foggy atmosphere about us that these dark forces are actively working against any kind of good being done in the world. But it gets worse. The pit gets deeper. Paul writes that by nature, we are gratifying the cravings of our flesh. And I do want to say that right off the bat, he's not saying that having desires, period, is bad. Right? There's good desires. Like desire for friendship, for intimacy, for love, receiving love and giving love. Paul here is talking about the desires of our flesh, which needs to be differentiated from the desires of our bodies. Like for survival. Sorry, for survival, eating and drinking. Paul is not saying that our bodies are the problem, or having bodies is a problem. That's not it. Flesh is a biblical word for a propensity to mess things up, break trust in our relationships, and act in selfish or self-preserving ways. Take our desire for friendship as an example. It's a good desire, right? To know and be known. It makes us human, it makes us feel alive. But then our desire to protect ourselves from uncomfortable conversations, 
rather than face our flaws or the hurt we inflict on another person, that's the desire of our flesh. To break trust, to mess things up, and to self-preserve. And Paul says we follow this desire willingly. And in Eugene Peterson's words, we let the world, who doesn't know the first thing about living, tell us how to live. All of this, the pit, our spiritual deadness, ignoring God, our willingness to follow the values of the world and its rulers, and our willingness to follow our flesh and its desires and where it leads, Paul writes, is deserving of wrath. Now I want to pause. I want to pause and acknowledge that those very words, God's wrath, can cause significant discomfort and maybe even trigger a painful response. Mm-hmm. There are some of us, if not many more of us, have real baggages around God's wrath. There are some of us who've been told at many points of our journey that God's wrath is after us, unless we clean up our act. And some of those things may not even be in our control, things you can't change whether it's about yourself or your situation, and we are left feeling that there's something irrevocably wrong with us. And there's some of us, and maybe even more of us, that have been raised in reactionary environments that use fear and judgment to correct deviant behavior. And that God's wrath is used as a way to keep people in line. And somehow, it seems like God's wrath is always reserved for certain kinds of people, but never to preach in the pulpit or to religious leader over me. And when this happens, nothing in our lives goes untouched. Nothing. And for that, I am truly sorry. Maybe your pulse quickened, or your body tense, or you clenched your fist, or perhaps you felt a surge of anxious feeling over in your chest or a different part of your body. And I just want to say these wounds that you bear, though invisible, are very real. And I want to reassure you that I intend to tread on this topic or discussion of God's wrath, not to pour salt into open wound, mm-hmm. but to bear it with truth and love. For it is a hard word. Now on to God's wrath. God's wrath, as it's biblically grounded and agreed upon traditionally and historically by so many teachers and other theologians, is God's settled opposition to sin and evil that arises out of his morally perfect and altogether loving nature. Let me say that again. God's wrath, as it is biblically understood, is God's settled opposition to sin and evil that arises out of his morally perfect and altogether loving nature. That was a definition from Chris Price, a wonderful, powerful teacher and pastor here in Vancouver. We cannot talk about God's wrath apart from his holiness. In fact, we cannot understand or contextualize God's wrath apart from God's holiness. And God's holiness means he is wholly good and morally perfect in every way, which is held in equal measure with God's loving nature. 
And when God's holiness meets sin, the result is wrath. Why is that? Picture this again with me for a moment. This time we're a parent. Some of you don't need to picture that, and some of you maybe don't want to picture that, and that's okay. Picture for a moment that you're a parent and your child in the playroom gets shoved, just gets pushed. I've had this happen right all the time. My reaction is like, what's up? Like, I'm gonna go up to this, this, I don't care how small this kid is, but they're gonna know how big I am. Like, hey, what's going on? And maybe Marie said something, sometimes she does, you know? And, um, and the reaction would be like this, this frustration or anger. But imagine something more unspeakable happens to your child, something more hurtful and damaging. The proper reaction is anger, right? When something is harming your child, the proper reaction is anger. The improper reaction, emotionally incongruent, is not caring at all. Emotionally neglecting your child. That would be the opposite. That would be the improper reaction. Now our anger isn't perfect. This is kind of where the illustration falls apart because our anger isn't perfect. And it's riddled with all kinds of baggage, trauma even. But God's anger is not like that. God's wrath is not the flying off the handle, I've had it with you, this is the last straw kind of anger. But it is anger at the sin and evil that's harming us and will destroy us in the end. Because the opposite of love is not wrath. The opposite of love is indifference, neglect. It's someone who doesn't care whether you live or you die. Whether you fall off a ditch tomorrow or you touch a burning stovetop. Someone who doesn't care. And any application of God's wrath, apart from God's holiness and altogether loving nature, will always lead to all kinds of abuse and misuse. But the answer, the answer is not to do away with it. And I understand the instinct of just skirting around the idea of God's judgment and God's wrath. I get the instinct of we've been so hurt by God's wrath and the usage of it's better just leave it behind. Because both the misuse and the abandonment of God's wrath compromises God's goodness. Both the abandonment and the misuse compromises the goodness of God. I don't know about you, but I can only believe in a God that will one day bring everyone into account that did misuse and abuse people in his name. I can only believe in that God. The God that affirms that that was abuse, that was evil. I can only believe in a God that will reckon with the evil that wasn't reckoned here on earth, or even the evil that wasn't reckoned enough. I can only believe in a God that promises to right all wrongs and wipe away all tears. And that God doesn't exist, and we compromise the goodness of that if you do away with his reaction to evil, which is his wrath. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. We can agree on this definition of God's wrath towards the sin and discord of the world. We can wrestle with it for sure. But I think where we struggle with it the most is when it's applied to us. Because remember, no one is exempt. Paul is describing every single person here, even the person you have in your mind as the holiest person in your head, in the standard of holiness. No one is exempt. That sin and brokenness around the world is a reflection of the sin and brokenness that's in us. 
And unless we address the oppressor that's within us, today's oppressed can be tomorrow's oppressor. Hmm. And to be honest, that may sound backwards to you, given what I just said. Outrageous even. But I want you to consider how generational trauma works, right? The field of research shows us that when someone experiences traumatic event or events, it is likely to affect how they treat their children or close family members. And then their children in turn transmit these behaviors onto their children by the way they treat them or deal with similar situations or view relationships. Just like we can pass on good traditions to our children, we can also pass very negative behaviors and tendencies to our children. In other words, we reflect the hurt and brokenness that is inside of us. That's the pit. We're in the pit and we reflect the pit onto one another. And it's very, very deep. And we cannot get out of it on our own. I did say today's word will be hard. But it's about to get better. My favorite two-word combination is coming up. And I want to read this over you. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Out of the pit. Out of the pit. Um, do you guys remember the 2010 Olympics? Yep. <laughs> it was a great time in our city. I remember when Sidney Crosby scored the golden goal in hockey. It was glorious. It was glorious. The feeling was that I scored the goal too. I didn't though, but that's what I felt. Like what was true of Team Canada was true of me, right? There was this massive wave of like, sorry, let me just take a drink of my water. There was this massive wave of team spirit that just spread across the whole city. Like do you remember going outside and like high-fiving random strangers with your red mittens? Yes. <laughs> your red 2010 mittens? Who still has those? I will give you 20 bucks right now if you, if you have them in your bag. The 2010 uh, limited edition, the Bay Red Gloves, 2010 Olympics. Everyone had them, and then no one had them, right? Um, so you're high-fiving with your red gloves, and you're feeling like you didn't go on the ice, you didn't do the shifts, you didn't score the goal, but it felt like you won the gold medal. It was a huge moment for Canadian hockey. And this understanding of team spirit and our unison with a hockey team is very similar to, if not the closest to what Paul says is true of us when we are in Christ. We've touched a bit upon this, of the unison of the church with, with Jesus. Now what is true of Jesus when we're unified with him is true of us. And it comes in three parts. Surprise, surprise. Almost in direct response to being in the pit. Three parts. We are made alive, we are raised up, and we are seated in the heavenly places. First part, we are made alive in Christ. God has raised us from our spiritual deadness. With the same power he worked in the resurrection of Jesus. 
It means that the resurrection life now runs in our new being. And we are made alive for a relationship with the living God. We're able to speak, hear, and know God. This is huge. And the biggest surprise of all is that God wants to hear from us. God wants to know us. The second part, we are raised up with Christ. Our quality of life is now different. Eternal life doesn't mean a long life. It doesn't mean adding on to what we already have here in our earthly life. It's not something we receive or enjoy after we pass on to the other side, but it's a quality of life that Jesus himself lived and was resurrected into. And Jesus' resurrection was actually an act of recreation that allows for us to experience eternal life now. And the Bible says that he is the first fruits of many, which means he is still about the recreating and renewing work today. Mm-hmm. Made alive. And then the third part, we are seated in the heavenly places with Christ. What is clear in the Bible, especially in Genesis, is that God's intention upon our creation is for us to be co-rulers with him over his creation. In Genesis 1.26, it says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. This is a mystery at one end, because we do not really know the fullest description of what this looks like. But it does mean, I think, in response to our own nature or state, when we willingly follow the forces of this world and the value systems against God, it means that we don't need to fear those powers any longer. That we don't need to value what they think is important. And that an expression of co-ruling with Jesus cannot look too far from his servanthood. Because he expresses kingship in such a way by serving people, caring for people. All of this, what Daryl Johnson calls gospel verbs, alive, raised up, seated in the heavenly places, is to show us from age to age one thing. And it's not God's power, even though he is truly powerful. This is an example of it. And it's not to show us God's wrath either but to show us his heart that is filled with immeasurable grace and rich mercy towards us. Consider this picture, another one. I have a lot of pictures today, using our imaginations wildly. Imagine that you fell into a deep hole that you cannot get out of, right? The theme of the pit. A priest comes by, looks at you, and takes pity on you. I'm going to pray for you. They tell you from where they are, on top of the hole. And they, and they pray for you, and they even write it down on a piece of paper, and they throw it down to you. But they eventually leave. And then another person comes by, and it's your close friend. They see you trying to get out of this hole, and they're horrified. Like, why are you there? And um, they cheer you on, and they give you all these encouragements, and then they eventually leave as well. And then Jesus comes. He sees you there in the hole, cannot get out, takes compassion upon you, and then climbs down into the hole with you. Maybe he even cries with you because you've been so lonely and terrified by yourself and the hole. And then he helps you get out of it. And I think it's a picture of what the writer of Hebrews had in mind. Specifically in Hebrews 4.15, it reads, 
For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet did not sin. In other words, Jesus knows what the pit is like. Mm -hmm. And nothing is going to stop him from getting to you in this pit. He knows the pressures of following the value systems of this world. He has struggled with the evil forces that animate human depravity. He knows just how crushing it is to be separated and be cut off from the source of life. Mm -hmm. He took on the very deadness and depravity of the pit in every way, tempted in every way, and won. Mm -hmm. He knows the pit. He will stop at nothing to get you out of the pit. And when we, he leads you out of the pit, and that's a biblical word for justification, you're out of the pit. The pit has no say on you. He will not stop getting the pit out of you. Mm -hmm. But Paul is saying that we still reflect the pit to each other. And the biblical word for that is sanctification. I am committed to getting the pit out of you till the very last day when all of this will come into fullness. And the pit in us is bent towards earning grace. And it's usually by trying to make ourselves look good, hide our mistakes, avoid accountability. We become, I don't need to teach my daughter to avoid accountability. She knows it by heart. <laughs> and guess what? As she grows up, she'll become more sophisticated at it, more subtle, and I've got to keep up with her. But I do not need to teach my child how to avoid accountability. She does it on her own. And this can take on a kind of religion or take on a kind of religion of earning, if you will. And in the religion of earning, we ask ourselves, how good do I need to be? We begin to think within this religion of earning that good people look like me, look like my tribe, my group, my crew. So for you to be good, you need to look like me, my group, my crew, my church, my community. And the religion of earning attaches our value to our performance. And since your performance isn't consistent, our value along with that changes, right? We don't always perform well. But the gospel is just way better news than that. Paul says it's by grace that you have been saved. Now there's usually three reasons that I would run to Marie. You've seen me do this. One, she's in danger or she's about to get hurt. Like, you've seen me as frantically search for her. Did she go out? I can't find her. Did she go out of the church doors? Please watch out. She's yay high. We'll run out of doors. Two, I'll run to her when she's hurt. I'll draw near her. She needs comfort. She's fallen down. This happened a lot when she was learning how to, uh, to walk. I'd run to her, make myself come near. And then number three, when she makes a mistake. I don't do all three perfectly. On my best days, maybe I do one out of three. Maybe. But there's some moments that I'm consciously aware of when she makes a mess or a mistake, especially during potty training, lots of it, where we make eye contact and I realize that how we react to her mistakes will define what she thinks of herself and her value to me. And so I choose to draw near to her, saying the mess is okay. We can deal with the mess, but it doesn't make you my child any less. Mm -hmm. I love you. 
I don't do this perfectly. God knows how much mercy I need on a daily basis. But the heart of religion says, when you sin, the more Jesus, or God, steps away from you. That's what the heart of religion says. You need to clean yourself up before you approach Jesus, because he's, he's not pleased with you. But the heart of God says, when we sin, his mercy runs to you. Mm-hmm. When we step over his boundaries, God's grace pours out. When we are too ashamed to look at the mess we've made, to look at ourselves, God in the person of Jesus draws near to you to remind you who you are and whose you are. He says the mess we can deal with, we can always deal with the mess and mistakes, but I never want you to equate that with your value as my child. The gospel says that the sins we have are many, so much, but they're actually just markers of deeper and deeper grace. The pit is indeed deep, but God's grace is deeper. And Paul reveals to us that God's heart does not tire of giving rich mercy, immeasurable grace, and the only ask today, the only ask, is that you receive and keep receiving it. Let's pray. We'll respond shortly in prayer and then in song. Um, as some of you may already know, we, we do something called prayer ministry, where we invite you to come and bring your needs to people that we trust right here on the stage. So I just want to facilitate for a moment a short um, moment of some stillness. And maybe you haven't had stillness this whole week, and this is a great opportunity to have that. And you've seen us do this. If you're comfortable, you can hold out your hands if you'd like, and if you're not, that's okay too. Um, but if you've been to church or it's your first time at church, uh, you've seen us do this, maybe during worship or singing. And really it's this bodily posture that says, it says many things, but one of the things it says is that I want to receive what only God can give. I want to receive what only God can give. And if you're comfortable in the spirit of immediate application to what God's grace calls for us to do, which is to receive it. You can hold out your hands, and I'll lead us in a, in a couple of minutes of stillness, and then we'll continue to respond and song together. All right? for us. And I feel like the word you have for many of us today, not all of us, is that you're near. I've come near to you. There's nothing that would keep me away from you. 
nothing hidden, nothing known that will keep me away from you. And if that word really is for you today, I invite you to come and receive prayer. But in this moment right now, however it looks like for you to engage or talk to God, however you'd like, as he speaks to you and reminds you that he will run to you. The moment we mess up and make a mistake to remind you who you are and whose you are. That you're not far off from God. You don't got to clean yourself up to come near to him. Whatever that looks like right now, take this moment to draw near to him who's already there waiting longingly and patiently for us. Jesus, would you come? May we know that you're near. May we know that you've come near to us. May we know that you've come near. Holy Spirit, as much as our hands are open, we want to open up our hearts to you as well. Would you come? Come show us Jesus. Come show us the immeasurable grace and rich mercy the Father has for us in the kindness of Jesus. Thank you.